we continue today with our study in the book of Judges, we find ourselves in chapter 8. And this morning's reading is from chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. I don't always like to, to use a sports analogy because some people don't care about sports and that's totally fine, but, but I have to in this situation. So in 2015, 2016, uh, the Golden State Warriors, an NBA basketball team, uh, had the winningest record for a single season. That year they won 73 basketball games. Now, the previous record for the most wins in a single season had been the greatest basketball team of all time, the Chicago Bulls. Now, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. No. Coming from Chicago originally, I have to give credit. They had won 72 games. Now, what happened after the regular season is what people remember. In 2015, the Golden State Warriors won 73 basketball games, and they blew through the playoffs, beating every team, making it to the NBA Finals. On everybody's mind was the idea that having won 73 games more than any other NBA team, if they win the NBA Finals, you will have to argue, you will have to say, with the best record and an NBA championship, this needs to be considered the greatest team of all times. But on that way to an illustrious finish... That team that had won 73 games in the regular season, and many were saying might be the greatest team of all times, lost the NBA Finals to the Cleveland Cavaliers. So to this day, what most people remember about the 2015-2016 Golden State Warriors is not how they finished, or how they started, but what? How they finished, having lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers. This great success of the regular season ultimately didn't mean that much. It really didn't mean anything because they did not win the championship. That whole idea that it's not how you start but how you finish, it plays itself out in sports all the time, but it also plays itself out in life. And today we're going to come to a story in the book of Judges where we're going to talk about and then learn from not how somebody started but ultimately how they finished and what that has to say to, to us. If you have your Bibles, Pastor John just read it this morning, but I want you to turn 
to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible or electronic device, we're going to have the, the words up on the screen here in just a moment as we work our way through the text. But every so often I like to remind us, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here. And if you don't have a church home, uh, we hope that maybe Valley Center Community Church would become your, your church family. But um, our practice as a church and our belief and understanding is that when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we gather as the people of God to worship him for who he is and what he's done, that we need that. We need that every day, but we definitely need it to come together because the world out there doesn't live for him. So we come together to praise him for who he is and what he's done and then to listen to him because in this word, in this book, the Bible, we believe we have the inspired word of God. So our practice as a church is to preach through books of the Bible. Every so often we'll, we'll do kind of topical messages, but we like preaching through books of the Bible. And I say all of that because we're in the book of Judges right now. So if you haven't been around this summer or you're just coming back, um, we're kind of almost midway through the book of Judges. And today we're picking up the second half of a story that began last week. It's the story of a man named Gideon. The time of the Judges takes place at about 1400 BC, so about 3,400 years ago. These stories were taking place in the Middle East, in the land of, of Israel. And there's this pattern in the book of Judges. The, the, the book of Judges, it tells the story of the people of God as they come into Israel and into the promised land. But how when they get into the promised land, time and time again, they, they turn away from the Lord. Although they're supposed to be God's people, they, they turn away from him. And then what God does in the book of Judges is he brings people to ultimately oppress them so that they would kind of correct themselves and turn back to the Lord. And so last week, Israel had rebelled, and God raised up a group of people called the Midianites. And they had conquered Israel, and they were ruling over them. And Israel cries out because of the oppression of the Midianites, and God decides that he's going to raise up a man by the name of Gideon to deliver them from the hands of the Midianites. Now, when he goes to Gideon, we learned last week, Gideon is in a wine press threshing grain because he's hiding from the Midianites. He's scared that they would ultimately discover him and take the grain and ultimately punish him. And so he does not feel adequate to the task of being the deliverer for God's people. And God's like, that's good. I don't need you to be adequate. In fact, the purpose of me even calling you is not because you are adequate, but it's to make a point that, that I don't need you. You just have to do what I say. It, the victory that's going to be won over the Midianites is not because you're great, Gideon, not because you're smarter or stronger than anybody else, but because I'm your God. I'm your king. I'm the one who will deliver you. And just to prove that point, Gideon follows the Lord, and he calls, as God told him, upon the Israelite people to come and to help him. And after the people come, God says, all right, now I want you to select those that I'm going to tell you. And when he's done selecting those that God has called him to select, he's left with only 300 men. Yet the Midianite army, as the scriptures told us, is over 100,000 men strong. And so Gideon goes out to fight the Midianites with 300 men. God wanting to prove that he can win the battles regardless of who it is. And so how do they win the battle? The remarkable thing is they don't even raise a sword. Those 300 men just carry torches, ultimately lanterns and horns, and they cry out after circling the camp, and the Midianites get so spooked by this that God sends turmoil in the camp. The Midianites turn the swords upon themselves and they kill each other. 
and Gideon wins the victory. The Midianites run off into the night. Now, this story from last week, you have to remember kind of the main point or the big takeaway. And that's this, if you're taking notes, it's, it's your kind of the first takeaway this morning. It's simply this. Our victories are because of God's grace and not our strength. Can I get an amen to that? Like this is the story of Gideon. This is really the story of the Bible. The victories that we have, the blessings that come to us are not because we are adequate to the task, but because the God who has made us shows us his grace and he's the one that produces the victories, not human strength. And as I mentioned, it's not just a story of Gideon. This is the message of the Bible. In fact, this is the heart of the message of the gospel, the good news, the message of Christianity. We are not saved by our works. That story begins all the way in the Old Testament. We are delivered from our enemies, not by our strength, but by our God. And the message that was proclaimed at VBS all this week was that message about Christ and that cross and what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example here of how God delivers us by his grace, not our strength. See, for Gideon and Israel, the Midianites were their great enemy on that day. But the truth is, the greatest enemy that all of humanity faces is sin. That we are captive, the Bible says, to sin. That it has mastery over us. And if you don't know what sin is, it's simply those who live in disobedience to God, those who do the things they ought not to do. When we do that, that's called sin. And we've all experienced it, and we all do it. And the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. You're not going to win against sin. But God, but God, being rich in mercy and grace, sent a deliverer, his own self to come and to save. In fact, if you were listening carefully, after our time of confession, we read these words. Let me read them to you again in Titus chapter 3. Listen to this. This is our hope. This is what is ultimately displayed in the story of Gideon, that we are saved and our victories come because of God's grace and not our own strength. And it has to do with our salvation. In Titus 3.3 it says, For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified, that is declared right by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Christian faith was never about and has never been about the good deeds you do in order to secure redemption and salvation with God. The message of Christianity has always been that we are saved by the grace of God, by turning to the deliverer that he provides and trusting in, in him. Some people see that the story of the Bible changes from old to new, and I say, no, no. The message is there from the very beginning until the end. Now, I hope this morning that if you have not yet put your faith and trust in Christ, that you've already taken to heart this truth, that you look to God's grace in order to save you and that you're not dependent upon your good works or your own, well, your, your own thoughts and actions to save. 
Because when you do that, as we're going to see today, the, the consequences are dire. And so I want you to now look with me in the very first verses of chapter 8. We're going to learn that Gideon started off with faith and trust in God. But the story of Gideon is a story of from faith to failure. Verse 8, or chapter 8 and verse 1 starts with this. The men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. After winning the battle, Gideon ultimately pursues the Midianites. They win in the valley, but then as they run off and they run out of Israel, Gideon follows them, but he's stopped by the largest, or I should say one of the strongest tribes in Israel, the Ephraimites. And the Ephraimites come to Gideon, their fellow countrymen, and they say, hey, why when you went out to fight them in the beginning, didn't you call us? Well, the answer is because God had told them only to call on a certain group of people, and they're ticked off. They wished that Gideon had called upon them because why? They wanted some share in the victory. They wanted some of the glory in being able to defeat the Midianites. Now Gideon responds to them in a very diplomatic way. He's very pragmatic here. Look at this verse 2. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then the anger against him subsided when he said this. Do you know what Gideon's doing here? He, he's, he's saying, oh, Ephraim, Ephraim, don't you see? You didn't need this victory. You didn't need to come alongside with me. Your grapes are better than any grapes in all the land. You guys already helped me destroy the princes of Oreb and Zeb. How many of you are going to name your kid Zeb? How about that for a name, right? And it's like... And he's like, you guys have already won victories. You really didn't need this one. He flatters them. He's being overly diplomatic. Now, you might think that this is born of wisdom and godliness. In reality, we're going to see in a little bit that there's a reason why he responded this way. And if he had the chance, he would have done something totally different with them. But they let him go. He satisfies them in the moment. And he continues his journey. Look at verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, and crossed over, he and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. To the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. To the east of the land of Israel is the Jordan. It's kind of the boundary line. And, and this verse tells us some very significant things. When Gideon crosses over the Jordan River, we're being told first that he has succeeded in what God called him to do. God said... I am sending you to deliver Israel from the rule of the Midianites. Well, guess what? Once the Midianites crossed over the Jordan River, there were no more Midianites in the land. They were no longer ruling over the Israelites. So he succeeded. But there's something else that's being said. Because now the Midianites aren't the only ones who've crossed over the Jordan. Who else has crossed over the Jordan? Gideon has. But he's done what God has called him to do. We're also being told that Gideon now has gone beyond what God said was necessary. This is going to be really important. If you miss that, if you don't see that, like the author is giving us this because it's important. It's telling us about kind of where Gideon is at at this point in his life. It might seem like he's being wise. Well, let's just, let's beat him completely. In reality, he's going beyond what God has asked him to. Now, he crosses over, and when he crosses over, he encounters two villages. 
two Israelite outposts, the village of Succoth and the village of Penuel. We heard that read. And he comes to these two villages, verses 5 through 7 tell us. And he goes to these villages and he says, we're exhausted. Can you give us some food to help us on our way? He goes to both these villages and he asks them this, this question. And we discover in the text that both the village of Succoth and the village of Penuel say, say the same thing. Look at verse 6. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? They refuse to hook a brother up. They refuse to help him out. They don't give him what he asks for. Now, it seems like a fair request that Gideon is making. We're exhausted. We're tired. Can you help us? Now, both Penuel and Succoth, they refuse Gideon. And there's both a practical reason for them doing it, but there's also a spiritual one. The practical reason is this. Gideon had 300 men with him. Do you know who had just passed through both of their villages? 15,000 Midianites. All right? And Gideon's like, help us out. We're going to get them. And they're like, let me see, one, two, three, four. It's like 300 of you. There's 15,000 of them. And so on a practical level, these two villages know, because they're on the other side of the boundary of the promised land, they know that if they help out Gideon and Gideon fails and the Midianites turn back around, what do you think they're going to do to those two little villages? They're going to raise them to the ground. They're going to burn them down for helping out their enemy. And so there's a practical reason, but here's the spiritual one. You see, when Gideon was called earlier to go and do the task that God had called him to do, whenever Gideon asked his countrymen to respond to him while he was doing what God had called him to do, he found favor in the eyes of his countrymen. In the previous chapters, 6 and 7, we see that unfold. They respond. While not all of them fight, they ultimately come and they do what God was calling Gideon to do. But remember how I said he's now crossed over the Jordan. Gideon church is going beyond what God had required him to do. He's pursuing these people for reasons that we will soon find out are not marked by a desire to do the will of God, but out of revenge. And so look at how he responds to them in verses 7 and 9. To Succoth, he says, Well then, when the Lord has given me Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. In verse 9, he says to Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Gideon's response to his own countrymen is, I will turn my wrath from the Midianites on to you because you did not help me. Now, church, does this feel right? Does it feel like Gideon should be talking to his fellow countrymen in this way? I just told you that there's a very practical and logical reason why they would reject him. But for him to say now he's going to display his wrath against his fellow countrymen, something's not right. What we're beginning to see here is that Gideon's success against the Midianites, rather than being to Gideon in his heart an example of God's grace leading to victory, 
It's starting to go to his head. Gideon is starting to believe that his accomplishments warrant the people around him doing what he says. Because notice, he doesn't say, I'm going to flail you and tear down this tower because you have not listened to God's command. See, Gideon couldn't say that because God hadn't commanded him to do what he's doing. Instead, Gideon says, I'm going to tear down this tower and I'm going to flail your flesh because you're not listening to who? To me. Gideon in this season and in this place is starting to believe his own press. He's starting to say, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Earlier, he treated the tribe of Ephraim very diplomatically when they called out his leadership. Why didn't you tell us to go with you, Gideon? And Gideon's like, oh, you're greater than me. You're better than me. It's all good. Don't worry about it. In reality, I think that the only reason why Gideon didn't respond to Ephraim the way that he does these two villages is because he was smaller. If he had the chance, he would have responded in kind with the Ephraimites. Instead, he backs off. You see, what we begin to see here, church, after last week's message of how God's grace is the source of our victories and not our strength, here we come and Gideon is showing for us that when we have been recipients of God's grace and God's blessing, here's the next takeaway. We can come to believe the success God gives us is our own doing. We can come to believe that the successes we experience, the prosperity we encounter, even the victory over sin is not because of God's grace lavished upon us, but it's because of what we have done. It's a very subtle thing, but it can begin to happen in every human heart. We look at our lives and we look at our victories and we look at our prosperity and we say, this is my doing. Now you might say, well, th that seems like a big stretch. I mean, to get that out of what Gideon has just done here, well, this isn't all that we see. You see, because Gideon pursues the Midianites in the next verses that we'll come back to, and he succeeds. He captures the kings of the Midianites, and he brings them back to Israel. And when he brings them back to Israel, I want you to jump down in the text with me to ultimately verse 22. You see, just days before all of this has taken place, here was Gideon cowering in a wine press. God gives him a little spiritual blessing, and he starts to think in just a few short days that it was because of something in Gideon. And so verse 22, the people of Israel come to him, and they say, Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. He brings the kings back, and all of Israel is just astonished at the victory. And, and church, who do they attribute the victory to? Look, look, look at that verse one more time. Let's put it up there. Verse 22 again. Look at, at who they attribute the victory to. They attribute it to Gideon. They say, you, it was by your hand, you saved us. Church, 
who saved Israel? It was God. It's God. Now, watch this. This is tricky. This is a tricky verse. Look at how Gideon responds. I love this so much. This is going to be so much fun. Here we go. And Gideon said to them, I, I will not rule over you. And my son, he will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, why do I do it that way? <clears throat> because that's what's really going on. These are a bunch of empty words, he says. Like it sounds so pious. It sounds so good. It's the truth, isn't it? It's the blatant truth. God was to be their king. God was to rule over them. It wasn't supposed to be a man. This was the whole point of the problem of the Israelites. They had rejected God as their king and ruler. They sought human rulers. And so Gideon says, I won't rule over you. My kid won't rule over you. God will rule over you. But do you see what Gideon does not do? And it's the first sign to us that Gideon has totally bought his own press and that he is completely believing that the victory over the Midianites is his doing. Because nowhere in this statement does he correct Israel for saying that he had been the one who delivered them. In fact, throughout this text, as we're going to see, nowhere does Gideon ultimately even talk with God he comes here, and he has an opportunity to say, listen, I did not win the victory. God won the victory. And because it's all of God and not of me, I will not rule over you, or my son won't rule over you. Like, this isn't God's plan for us, but he doesn't do that. And the second reason why we know that these are empty and hollow words is because what he does next. Don't look at his words. Look at his actions. In the very next verses, we see Gideon taking all the glory for the victory upon himself. The first thing he does right after he says this is he looks at all the Israelites and he says, I will not be your king, but I want each and every one of you to give me earrings from your spoil, gold earrings from the spoil that we took. You are to give that to me. Do you know who demands spoil after a victory? A king does. And they deliver to him 43 pounds of gold. He exacts a tax from the Israelites. That's what a king does. And he takes that and he does something even more crazy. He goes and he takes all of the garments. Look at this down in verse 26. He takes the royal pendants that were on the camels of the Midianite kings. He takes them for himself. He takes the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So he takes for himself the kingly garments. He doesn't distribute it amongst the people. He takes the clothes that belong to the kings for himself. He makes them pay a tax. He takes the foreign king's clothes, the purple, which would have represented a kingly line. Then, right after that, verse 27 says, he takes the gold and he makes this thing called an ephod. And the ephod was a, was a garment that the priests in the Old Testament wore. Now, God had established that the people of God were to worship in the tabernacle with the Levite priests. And the Levite priests were the ones who wore the ephod. Now we have Gideon coming and making this object of worship. And what he does is he makes this object of worship. We don't know exactly what it looked like. But he puts this garment, and it appears from the text on some form of a statue. And I can't get into all that later. And he sets it up 
in his village, in his city, here in Ophrah, where he lives. So he makes them pay a tax. He takes the kingly garments for himself. He establishes worship in his village. He functionally is living and acting like a what? A king. He rules over the people. He tells them what they are to pay him. He wears the garments. And then he tells them where they are to worship. If that doesn't sound like a king, I don't know what is. His actions do not match up to his words. But then he does the most brazen thing of all. And if you don't think that he thought he deserved the glory and that the success was because of his own doing, if you don't think he is now diverted from faith to failure, he goes off, we read here in the text in verse 31, and he takes concubines and many wives to himself. And one of the concubines that he takes to himself and he has a son with, and this son is going to factor in the story next week, and he's a bad dude, Verse 31 says, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech, or in Hebrew, Avimelech. Now you might think, well, so he calls his kid Abimelech. He had lots of other sons, and we don't know their names, but we know this son's name. Do you want to know why? The name Abimelech literally means, my father is the king. Think about how brazen he is at this point. I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. You know what? The name Abimelech, I like that name. My father is the king. I feel for Gideon. I feel for Gideon, but church, there's a lesson here for us. The lesson is what we've seen thus far. We can come to believe the temptation exists for us to look at our prosperity, to look at our successes, to look at our victories, and over time begin to attribute it to our strength and not to God's grace. Gideon is a warning to us. He is somebody who started well, who showed tremendous faith, but over time he drifted. Over time he drifted. But not only does he show us that this is a potentiality for us, what I want to leave us with this morning is that he also reveals to us, is this happening to us? Is this happening to me? Am I someone who is functionally living my life like Gideon, saying one thing, oh, I trust in God and, and, and to him be the praise and the glory for my life, and yet we function totally differently? You see, because Gideon's life gives us a couple signs here. Signs that you are taking credit for God's work. Let me just run through these really fast. We see this from his life. What are the signs that we've fallen into the trap of Gideon, that we've come to believe that our successes are our doing and not God's? The very first sign that we see in Gideon is you do not acknowledge God's hand in your victories. In your successes, you do not acknowledge the, the hand of God. That's the very first kind of the, the takeaway from this. You do, do not acknowledge him. There's not one time in this where he clearly says, outside of when he's talking to the villagers, he says, they, when the Lord gives them into my hands. But, 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 but that's, he's using that to defend his actions, yet when he has the clearest opportunity to speak to the entire nation, to remind them that their victory was due to the hand of God, he doesn't do it. 
How about for you? How about for me? In our lives, in those areas where we see, see victory, or even prosperity, even, even blessings, whatever they might be. Listen, just because you might have more than somebody else doesn't mean that you're greater than somebody else, but, but some people have more material things than others. And when you look at those things, do you think to yourself, you know what, everything that I have, all my wealth, all my resources, they all come from God. I mean, there, there are so many other things that could have happened in my life. Do you acknowledge to your children, to your friends, that everything that you have is God's to begin with? When you start your day, when you start your week, does your life reflect this to be true on a spiritual level? Do you acknowledge your victories over sin? Do you acknowledge your salvation? Do you celebrate what God has done for you? Do you acknowledge his hand? in the victories of your life? Or do you find yourself like Gideon, that the last person to get the praise, the last person to get the credit is God? What we believe as a church is that everything that we have and everything that we are comes from the hand of the Lord. That I can take no credit for my intelligence, for my physical health, for my physical abilities, we can't be a proud people because everything comes from his hand. Gideon fails to do that. The second thing that is a sign that you're taking credit for God's work is you require the recognition of others. You require the recognition of others. You, you need the recognition of others. This manifests itself in so many ways. That if I'm not recognized for the good things I've done or the ways that I have served you, you might say, I don't have a problem with that. I don't need the recognition of others. Really? When you do something for your spouse, when you do something for your children, are you okay if they don't say thank you? Now, there's proper etiquette, and there's a way that they need to be kind and gentle and, and respectful. But is there anger? Is there frustration? Is there resentment? Even in the life of the church, you know, I was thinking about this. 100 and almost 70 people volunteering at VBS. Like, we love all of our volunteers, and I hope you felt appreciated this week. But what if nobody said thank you to you all week for what you gave at VBS? How would you feel? You might be a little bit disappointed. But does that disappointment, does it turn into resentment? Does it turn into anger? Does it turn into these people really don't care about me? Do you know what with them? If they're not going to recognize me for what I did, Gideon puts that on full display. He comes to Succoth and he comes to Penuel and he comes to these villages. He's like, oh, could you just give us a little something to eat? We're, we're, start, we're exhausted here. They're like, uh, I don't think the job's done yet. Sorry, not going not gonna to help you out. And he just demonstrates rage and resentment against them. By the way, the text tells us he does exactly what he said, and he goes even a step further. On his way back, he captures this villager from Succoth, and he comes to the guy, and he's like, give me the 70 names, or give me the names of the leaders of your village. And the guy gives him 70 names. And he goes into the village, and he takes those 70 guys, and he whips them, and he beats them in front of everybody. 
And then he goes to Penuel and he says, remember how he said he was going to tear down their tower, which is probably their great monument? He doesn't just tear down their tower, he goes a step further. He kills all the men of that village. When people don't recognize the work you've done, which was only able to be accomplished because of God's grace in your life, what's in your heart? What do you demand of others? The other thing that Gideon shows us in this is the sign that, you know what, I might be taking credit for my work. I might have lost the vision that it's God's grace and not my strength that brings these things about, is that you do not seek the Lord in prayer. I alluded to this earlier, but it's so sad to me. In chapter 6 and 7, there's this ongoing dialogue between Gideon and the Lord, and yet there's not one time in chapter 8 that Gideon talks to God, that he prays to him that he seeks his counsel, that he seeks his face, that he engages the God who saved and delivered him in intimate relationship. He just doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And by the way, Gideon is the only judge in all the book of Judges that before he dies, the people start to turn away from the Lord. I think it's very telling because Gideon has started to fall away from communion with God. He's not seeking him out. He's not asking for the Lord to work. Why? Because Gideon believes that he can accomplish it in his own power and by his own might. Which is why I say this very last point, which is this. You know that you're not trusting in God's grace, but instead your strength. When you turn to worldly means to get what you want. Because he's not communing with God... Gideon turns to worldly means to get what he wants. I skipped over this, but we're going to finish by looking at what happens. After he captures the final two Midianite kings, look at verse 18. He captures these two Midianite kings, and it says, he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men that you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Now, what are they saying here? Well, he tells us. And he said, this is Gideon talking, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them, I would not kill you. Do you now know why he kept on pursuing them over the Jordan? He knew that these were the men that had killed his brothers. He was out for what? Revenge. See, that's what the world demands. Revenge, payback. Gideon goes after them for revenge. But then what he does next breaks my heart as a father. Verse 20 says, So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. Rise, my son, and kill them. He asks his son to do his dirty work. Why? Because in the ancient world, this was the warrior's code. This is what the pagan nations did. To become a warrior was to enact your first kill. And so here he has his son. We don't know how old he is, but he's, but he's using the worldly means to accomplish his ends. He's like, this is what warriors do. And so he gives the sword to his son to kill these two kings. The boy is ultimately petrified, and he doesn't go through with it. It says this, but the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. 
and seeing this, Zeba and Zalmunna, they begin to taunt Gideon. Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took their crescent ornaments. What we have here, church, is ultimately Gideon using the world's means to accomplish his ends. God didn't call him to do that. God didn't call him to use his son to kill these individuals. He's so focused on himself and what he thinks he needs that he takes his eyes off of the Lord. My final thought for you is this. As Christians, as followers of the Lord, look at Gideon's life and be aware that prosperity can be as spiritually dangerous to the Christian as spiritually challenging as adversity. Sometimes we so focus so much in, in, on our suffering and, and how suffering and adversity, how that can tempt us to turn away from the Lord. Gideon is a story that the reverse was the case. It was his prosperity that he didn't know how to handle it. It was his prosperity and the blessings that he received from the Lord that slowly over time he thought were his own doing. When that happens... When that happens, when we take hold of our prosperity and victories and claim they're our doing, it can be just as devastating as not handling adversity in the right way. And so Gideon's story comes to us, and it says, take watch on yourself. Take watch over yourself. Are you a person that gives all praise and all glory and recognize that all you have comes from his hand? Or do you continually grasp for the victories in your own strength? What guards us, church? What helps us to be able to handle our prosperity in the right way, to handle our victories in the right way so that God receives the glory? Well, it's to go back to the takeaway from last week. To remember, to rehearse, as we do every Sunday, that our victories are because of God's grace and not our strength. Amen? And we're going to celebrate that right now. We're going to celebrate this truth. How do we do it? What victory do we look back to? Gideon could have looked back to his victory over the Midianites, and he could have said, look at, look at how God delivers us with only 300 people. Today, we come to the Lord's Supper. This is how we remember the greatest victory of all. It wasn't 300 men that God used. It was one man. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, came down, and he gave his life for you and for me. I can never take the praise. I can never take the glory. I can never depend upon my own strength. When I confess and remember and lift up every single day that I am saved by God's grace and not my own works. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to come to the table. Lord, help us. Help us to cling to the message of the cross, the message of the gospel. Help us to be a people who are so generous, a people who are so open-handed. I loved even as our missionary Natalie was, was saying that we're an open-handed people because we believe that any victory, any blessing, any success, any fruit that we experience in our lives is because of the grace that you have lavished to make those things happen and not our own strength. That we never be a proud people because we so cling to the good news that by grace we have been saved. It's not our own doing. It's all your work. And my prayer, Lord, is that today, if there's anybody here whose life has fallen apart and who has tried so many times to prepare the, the brokenness and the pain of their life and their own strength, that they would realize it's only through Christ. Acknowledging their need for a Savior, 
believing that Christ has been the one you have sent and confessing him as Savior and Lord, Lord, that today they could be delivered and they could experience the victory that we celebrate as we come now to your table. We pray ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.